Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 47 of the End of Sport podcast. We are super excited to get into today's episode with Jessica O'Byrne, who's a former gymnast and coach and a creator and host of the Must Listen Gymcastic podcast, which since its creation has been the most popular gymnastics podcast in the world. This episode is a natural follow-up to our gymnastics week as we return to a lot of the things we talked about in our interviews that week. And we focus on the culture of harm that sort of permeates the gymnastics world and who better to talk to than an absolute expert on gymnastics culture, harm within gymnastics, and the abuse and trauma that athletes have been known to face. So before we get into the episode, as always, if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share, and leave us a review on whatever uh, podcast app you use. Reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod. Check out our website at www.theendofsport.com. And if you're particularly generous, you can click support us at the top on our website and support us via our Patreon. So with that said, please Enjoy the show. Jessica O'Byrne is a former gymnast and coach and a creator and host of the Gymcastic Podcast, which since its creation in 2012 has been the most popular gymnastics podcast in the world. As someone who has been deeply involved in gymnastics for most of her life, she is known as a fierce critic of the abusive nature of the sport. And as such, she's a, a huge supporter of athletes and victims' rights amidst the many scandals that have rocked gymnastics in the 2010s. Jessica, we are so excited to speak with you tonight. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So we like to ask everybody, how are you doing with the pandemic, social uprisings, and fires in Southern California? Um, so here the fires haven't been that bad, haven't affected us much, a little bit of ash coming in the windows, but it's been worse. So I'm crossing my fingers. Um, pandemic wise so far, only one family member has gotten it and it's mild. Um, and I, we started quarantining way before like offices shut down and the state shut down. Um, and so I feel like really glad that we did that. Um, and then and it's kind of back to normal, just masked everywhere here. I mean, normal ish. Um, and then, you know, normal ish with schools not being open and that kind of stuff. Nor yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's as good as you can do in the United States. <laughs> um, and then, um, yeah, Black Lives Matter. I feel like it's been, it's so incredibly important and it's so time. And I'm like, I feel like this confluence of politics and, uh, the, the way that social media can communicate and show the world, um, a murder taking time in real place and prove what actually happened, um. It means that we can finally continue the work that the civil rights movement started so many years ago. And I think it's incredibly important. And I think it's one of the things we've been talking about for so many years is the racism in gymnastics and the systemic, the way that racism is a fundamental part of gymnastics from the very, it's very inception. And, um, and I, I feel like it's galvanized so many athletes to talk about their experience and for people to, especially judges to really, and coaches to look at what is it that I don't see 
because I cannot experience life as you and what am I blind to and um, learning that's not enough just to think that you're not racist, that you have to actually activate and do something. And I've learned a lot during this time. And so I'm really grateful for it. And I hope it does more and keeps going. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think like, we're there's so much honestly that we want to get to in this podcast but i think the first place to start before we get to all of these things which i think are kind of entrenched in our discussion of gymnastics and gymnastics culture but before we get to the sort of um structural issues i think it, it would be great if our listeners could get a little bit of your background and from what i understand from listening to the gymnastic podcast you're deeply obviously deeply embedded in the gymnastics world. We are, are nowhere near as embedded as you uh, are at being a former gymnast and a former coach. Can you sketch out for us how you first got involved in gymnastics, the sort of when, where, and sort of what drew you to the sport? How long were you a gymnast? And how long were you a gymnast co or a gymnastic coach? And what were your experiences like in the sport? So um, I started doing gymnastics because my dad got me into it because he did gymnastics as part of his training in the um, in the army for the um, he was in the army language school. And according to him, he was a spy. But who knows? Um, and so he loved gymnastics. And so he's the one that got me into it. So I started gymnastics in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania as a kid. And I did it recreationally all my life. And then I moved to California where it was a much more serious system, except for like there's one serious gym in Pennsylvania. Um, and so I got moved on to a team and I started competing and I competed. So when I'm uh, probably until the beginning of high school, my freshman year of high school. And I only competed like compulsory levels. I would have been like a level six, what's, you know, level now, nothing close to elite. Cause I was a huge scary cat and refused to do, I refused to be bossed around and I refused to do anything that scared me too much. So I would never have been a good elite gymnast. Um, and I didn't like pain. So all of those things, um, counted me out from that uh and so i but then i stopped gymnastics in high school and i missed it so much and um, i only stopped it because basically i just didn't i didn't like the system i didn't like everything being about competing and i just loved doing it um so i wanted to get back to it and then when i was 17 i moved to germany by myself after i graduated from high school and they have a normalized system much like japan where you can do gymnastics for health and fitness for your entire life so in both Japan and in Germany, it's normal to keep competing from the time you're a little kid all the way through adulthood. Um, it was common to go to gymnastics meets in Germany where there would be children competing along with people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, and it wasn't seen as weird or unhealthy. It was encouraged. Um, and the team that I was on in Germany actually had, we ranged from ages to 12 to 25. Um, and it was so fun and I fell in love with it again. And so I kept doing gymnastics and competing as an adult well into my thirties. Um, so I had a longer, I think, uh, adult gymnastics career maybe than I did as a kid. I don't know. Um, and so I, um, and then I was really the only skill I had was gymnastics coach, like gymnastics and data entry. So I, uh, when I was in college, I started <laughs> coaching. So I coached, um, at club, I coached like a recreational optional level. And then I coached, um, 
at, at a high school when, in Washington and Seattle where they have a vibrant high school gymnastics system where you can have kids who don't have to have the money to compete in a club system and have parents that can afford the expensive gymnastics training and they can compete right alongside. They can be very first time gymnastics uh, kids that are doing gymnastics alongside like level tens who are, you know, could get scholarships. It was really, mm -hmm. that was my hands down, my favorite coaching experience ever of all time was not coaching in a gym where I could watch elites train every day. It was coaching kids in a public high school from all over the place um, it was a magnet school, um, Garfield in Seattle. So it was a, um, it was a, it was a really varied population at the school. And we had everybody from refugees, um, to, um, we had a gymnast who had been shot, um, in the knee at school, um, by another, um, by another kid at school. So we had to like accommodate her gunshot wound and the piece of bullet in her leg for her routines. And then to kids who were, um, bound for the Ivy League and, you know, are well into um, worldwide politics to this day. <laughs> Kids that I still keep an eye on. And I'm like, yep, I knew you'd go here. Um, so there are, it's a really, I love that experience. It was absolutely my favorite. Um, and then I never judged because I'm terrible at math and I have math anxiety and uh, it's too much pressure. And um, I think that's the basics of my gymnastics story. Yeah, well, and what's fascinating about that story actually is that so much of it sounds really healthy and positive. <laughs> you're, you're you're really articulating kind of like the best things about sport and gymnastics in particular, which is amazing. But at the same time, um, obviously, so much of your work now and your your kind of um, your commentary and your mission really in, in the gymnastics world has to do with the issues around harm and abuse, right? That are also a really significant part of gymnastics culture as, as with many other, if not all other sports. I mean, definitely with all other sports as well. Um, so I actually, I'd be really curious to hear kind of as another starting point to this narrative, when would you say you first started to perceive the sport as harmful in the way that you now understand it to be? Like, was that a long kind of process of coming to understand it that way? Or were there particular salient events that really changed your perspective? I kind of always had a perception of it that that existed. I mean, we had Posars um, who, you know, you've had Gaza Posar on, on the show and he famously um, was the choreographer for Nadia and his gym was in Sacramento where I lived from age 10 to 17. So, you know, like everyone knew of his gym as the gym where everybody goes and gets hurt. And if you wanted to get hurt, that's where you would go. So I had that awareness of like, this is communist style and it's bad. Um, ironically, I ended up doing elite or not elite gymnastics. The elites were there. I ended up doing adult gymnastics at his gym later. Um, and I loved the adult gymnastics program it was so fun and good, but I watched the elites train and I was horrified. Um, and that's when he had Rick, uh, I forget what his last name is, but he was a guy that left Carolis and went there and coached Michelle Campy. And I was just like, what is going on here? Like, is anyone else watching this? Why are we all thinking this is fine? Um, uh, so I had an understanding of it as a kid. Um, I think I always watched gymnastics on TV and the narrative after, I would say after ABC lost the contract of, on gymnastics and NBC won the bid, um, for the Olympics and all the big USA gymnastics meets, their narrative was always super negative and super 
they made it sound like everyone doing elite gymnastics was being tortured. And I felt like that was super unfair and didn't represent the sport. It may have represented 99% of elite gymnasts um, Mm -hmm. or 95, 90-ish. But I was like, this isn't gymnastics. Like, this isn't why you get into it. This isn't, elite gymnastics is not gymnastics. It's elite sport. And I feel like knowing what I know now and having, I wanted to be an athletic trainer. That's what I studied in college. I have my degree in kinesiology and exercise science. And going through that program and being at different schools and seeing how the athletes were treated um, I was, I always thought athletic training was about health and I was like, oh no, this isn't about health. <laughs> I am learning how to tape people together so they can keep competing injured to win. That is the whole point of this. And, um, it was a big eye opener for me that elite sport, I think that elite sport at any level is not healthy. And I think the only mm-hmm. people that I've seen who have done it in a healthy way are adults who control their own training. So, and I don't mean, I mean, people who really have some time away. So, yeah. you know, and so it's so uncommon. Um, there are a lot of adult gymnasts competing. Now we have a lot of gymnasts in their twenties and thirties, even, you know, winning Olympic medals, um, winning gold, being the, you know, Olympic champion in their late twenties. And that's freaking amazing. And we're going to have Simone now and we have, there's a lot of examples. Um, yeah. but I, I hated how NBC talked about the gymnasts and talked about gymnastics. Um, so that's, I don't know if there was a, I mean, I've, I spent as a fan a lot of time on the message boards when there wasn't another way for us to get information about gymnastics. Cause there was just one gymnastics magazine and we didn't get the dirt. Um, and so through the message boards, I think that's where a lot of fans ended up because that's the only place you could get up to date information. And the, that is where I think I learned the depth of knowledge and how how public in a way it was that people knew about so much that abuse that went on and that no one could do anything about it. And that's what was really upsetting to me. Yeah. And, you know, in listening to some of your episodes, I mean, you all reference like the message boards and, and so is that something that's been around for a long time? That's really kind of been a source for fans and kind of even like parents to kind of find out, find out information when it was still kind of like the whisper network. Yeah, I mean, there were there was like uh, two main message boards who that were really the places that were so vital for information that literally USA Gymnastics would have someone create allegedly um, would have someone create different profiles to try to get in to see what was being said. And part of that was that that was the only place that you could get scores or find out results from these secret behind mm-hmm. closed doors elite competitions that were qualifiers. But none of us could find out as fans what was actually happening. We couldn't even see the scores. So um, they wow. were they were vital. And as so many of the people that were involved in those message boards in the back in the day have now gone on to start their own blogs, start their own podcasts, start do something in the industry, or some of them have gone on to become, you know, psychologists and therapists, because that's how invested they have been and how Mm -hmm. gymnastics affected their lives. So yeah. Wow. Well, thank you. And so I have like a really brief follow up since we're not super fit, like we're still learning about sort of the history of not only gymnastics, but also like TV broadcasting. And so you mentioned how um, ABC lost the contract and then I guess NBC pick it up. Could you like give us a pre brief explanation of what you're referring to there? Yeah. So NBC or ABC Wide World Sports 
used to have all the gymnastics TV contracts. And I'm not sure what happened exactly. I don't know if ABC decided not to bid again or if NBC outbid them, but they lost the contracts. I feel like it was sometime in the 90s, beginning of the 90s, maybe late 80s, and NBC took over. And uh, ABC had always had like Bart Connor and Kathy Johnson, who are both Olympians, um, and kind commentators i mean they had their learning curve like we could go back to the early 80s and find something offensive that they said i'm sure but they have been known as kind and thoughtful and um they always were you know they treated gymnasts as if they were human beings when they commentated about it with with about them with feeling like these are humans with feelings they're not robots who are there to, for you to just objectify with your commentary and mm. when they when abc stopped um and nbc started the whole narrative was different it was all about drama injury losing your childhood um be losing everything that made you female in american culture it was about communism being bad it was about the cold war it was about the cold war being played out through sports which obviously that's true but um it was um and the, the, and the idea that everyone else, all other countries were horrible divas um, and Americans were the only ones that had any spirit in their gymnastics and weren't forced to do gymnastics was the overarching theme. Missing prom was the mo worst thing that could ever happen to you as a human a woman, a girl in American culture, according to the NBC narrative. So, so they just so stuck their facts, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> so they're they're like we will definitely get into that sort of Cold War rhetoric and a variety of things um related to that in in a couple of questions. But I I'm really curious the particularly for our listeners, we had a huge gym like gymnastics week that was a mm -hmm. huge success on the podcast. And for some of our listeners, maybe the one listener who might not be familiar with Gymcastic and, and the wonderful work you've been doing for the past eight or so years, you have an enormous following. You've kind of straddled this line between being deeply critical of the sport structure, but also like huge fans of the sport and in particular athletes. Can you kind of walk us through the genesis of the podcast itself? Sort of what was its impetus, how it has evolved over time? And what have been some of the biggest challenges for the show? Yeah. Um, yeah. So we started basically because I wanted to find a way to do something that I was super passionate about that act that also contributed to making the world a better place in some way. And, um, you know, all I could think, of, you know, I watched Oprah's last show and she told she said, you're supposed to find the thing that you could do when you were a little kid that you wouldn't. And I was like, well, all I would want to do is, is gymnastics. But like, that's not, you know, I could still do gymnastics, but that's not the thing. So I'm not worrying about making a, the world a better place with my adult gymnastics floor routines. I mean, obviously I was, <laughs> but not, it wasn't a broad enough audience. So, um, so I, so I, there was a sports, like a, you know, boys ball sports, you know, NFL, um, you know, NHL, baseball, whatever podcast that I, or a radio show I listened to and it was hilarious and I don't care about any of those sports I could care less unless it has to do with like athlete rights what's going on mm -hmm. in the sports but the show was so funny that I would listen to it and I thought you know well there must be a gymnastics radio show or podcast and there wasn't 
So I was like, well, if there isn't, I might as well do it. Now's the time. Yeah. Right. And so, um, you know, I was heavily involved in the punk rock scene all through high school and uh, my college years. So I was like, DIY, like do it yourself. There's no better person than me to do this. So um, I thought it was very punk rock to start a gymnastics podcast. So I reached out to the most like prolific, thoughtful, knowledgeable and funny uh, group of bloggers um, that I like to read and follow and the people who really did the work. So every week or multiple times a week, no matter what, for years they had been uh posting and doing work um and i reached out to them and i was like here's my idea you guys show up i'll tell you i'll do, like have some subjects i'll do all the work and like what do you think and they went for my pitch and so that's how the show started um and through the years we've had different hosts people have gone on to great things blythe uh lawrence went on to work for the fig which is the international gymnastics federation mm -hmm. she then um she ghost wrote Allie Raisman's book, Fierce. She yeah. has written for every major publication you can think of about gymnastics. She's just amazing. And she's just, she's just done so many great things. I mean, Allie's book is just, um, yeah, uh, it cost her working at the FIG to do that book. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, um, yeah, I mean, I'm just so proud of her and everything she's done. And that's all on her has nothing to do with me. That's her as an independent person. Um, so the, the, I think the the struggle in the beginning was we kind of wanted to get our questions answered as fans that we didn't understand. So like our first guest ever was Tim Daggett, who is an Olympic gold medalist and has been the host of NBC Gymnastics commentator for, Commentary for years. And um, I think some of it was like just not understanding how deeply the politics of gymnastics at the time eight years ago was not ready for the kind of questions that we had <laughs> um and like just getting to the heart of it why are you so negative why why does nbc commentate like this but college gymnastics doesn't like what's going on and to tim daggett's credit like he was very honest and open um and he talked about their market research and drama is the thing that works and you know if you've ever watched nbc you know that you don't care about these sports until you see the fluff piece that they do on the swimmer with you know no family and a car accident and a brain injury and then and they just had a baby but the baby can't breathe and there was a fire and then you're like oh my god if this guy doesn't win and you never heard of them but you're crying while you're watching so right. i was like okay like there i can understand that aspect of it but why does it have to be mean <laughs> um so i think the and some of the struggles over the years have been just us and especially me like i have a big mouth i will say exactly what i think and i think that's a benefit to the podcast <laughs> that's why it's easy for me to just talk but i think for me the most important thing has been um that just understanding that i can be wrong i will have blind spots as a white woman in the united states i will definitely have blind spots and so it has been me really taking criticism and um reading it not taking offense and being like okay i have things to learn i mean one of the examples of this there's many examples but um one really big mistake that we made in the beginning is like we were doing a show about um trans athletes and gymnastics and um one of our co-hosts had just read um the sports gene and so we kind of went over that and we talked about stuff and i was like i'm gonna play a character like I would have to deal with in the area that I live. Like people, it's very right wing. People don't understand this. They don't, this topic is not on the table at all for people. Um, 
And so I was like, I'll play this character that doesn't know things. And I'll just ask you guys questions as if I don't know. <laughs> and that backfired big time. That was a huge mistake. People felt disrespected. They felt, um, they felt hurt. They felt, I mean, it was a really bad idea on my, on, uh, and you know it did not help um it didn't bring in people who didn't understand and help them understand more it made more people just upset and feel like they were being um discriminated against even more so that was a huge mistake um and then the other thing that's been a growth point has kind of been like um I'm trying to think if there's another bigger thing than that oh it's been like getting to getting to the stage of having athletes come to us because they want to talk about being abused and have amplify their own voice and talk about what happened to them or expose something that they weren't ready to before and they wanted to um that was a huge turning point where um I was like okay, I have to take care of myself around this too. Like the rest of us, like we need to like not expose ourselves to secondary trauma because we're, we're going to, there's nothing we can do about that. So we have to also take care of ourselves. Um, and I, it's a huge responsibility and it's not just, I mean, the, to the responsibility, like the level to which that I take that seriously is making sure like nothing on my computer or my social media or any of my accounts are ever compromised. So like I went and did the, um, the, uh, freedom information, uh, what are they called? The one Snowden is involved with, um, I'm totally blanking on the name, but anyway, there's like a journalism, uh, organization and they will do a special like one-on-one -on -one, sit down with your computer and your phone and go through a tr security training with you because i was like I, I can't have anyone like i can't have myself accidentally when i'm at these meets and i have to share wi-fi with everyone someone breaking into my computer and stealing these you know things that no one else was supposed to see or accidentally doing it when i don't realize so that part of like getting into the hardcore journalism was a big learning curve and involved a lot of emotional and security issues as well um i still don't really understand how big we are like i know a lot of, i see the numbers and i see the what organizations you know publish quotes and stuff but i it still doesn't it doesn't it just i i like if there was a, if i was sitting in front of that many people i would be like oh crap but when just <laughs> online it you know and i think that's good because otherwise i would be more nervous about being open to you know be vulnerable and make mistakes and just speak freely um and learn and admit when i make mistakes um so yeah absolutely yeah and so we want to kind of dive into um or like hear more about sort of the you and the podcast role in sort of discussing and kind of re revealing or not revealing, but I guess discussing and kind of tackling the issue of sexual abuse. And really, cause I mean, the podcast has played a really central role in like really discussing it in a very like thorough and consistent way, like week after week after week. Um, and so for example, um, I mean, this is one of many, but in a t August, 2020 episode titled, uh, let's talk about Taryn, which we will link in the show notes. Um, you had a guest, uh, by the name of Mark Alessia, who was one of the main indie star reporters, um, for dis for unveiling uh, the sexual abuse scandal. And he mentioned at least once, if not multiple times, how he went to you 
to answer questions and kind of get filled in on the necessary context about gymnastics. So to the extent that you feel able, can you explain your role and the process by which the abusive culture has been kind of revealed within the sport? Yeah, I mean, for me, I think one of the benefits of just being part of the family that I was raised in is that my family just had no taboos, which can be good and can be super embarrassing and horrifying sometimes too. So I have no problem talking openly about and identifying body parts by their actual names and not beating around the bush and not being embarrassed to be really straightforward about things. Um, and I think that um, part of like getting to this part of getting to where we have gotten with the podcast and it's not so much, it's not really about the podcast. It's about like trying to change the culture of the sport as I think people by the questions we ask, by the topics, like when we used to like talk about stuff on the podcast, when we first started, like people did not talk about this stuff openly. They just didn't. I mean, it would be, there would be one news article and then that would be it. Like no matter how much pressure people tried to put on USA Gymnastics or on the FIG, or if anyone even was putting, you know, stuff on the pressure on the FIG, I mean, um, still not <laughs> right. I mean, it's just so, I mean, there are letters that they put out, like we're going to have a, you know, a whole, <laughs> I can, we can get into them later, but, um, it was not the, the, where we have come from everything being behind closed doors and message boards and one-on-one -on -one conversations and whispers to people speaking openly and honestly and the you know british gymnast creating uh, uniting and creating a hashtag uh, you know gymnast alliance to talk about abuse to try to change the culture like that it was just not that did not happen it's been i mean and also of course this is in the greater cultural context of the me too movement and um of black lives matter and all of that you know so it's not just us it's not just what's happened with um the ex-doctor who i don't like to name but um you know the documentaries that have come out the the relentlessness of the gymnasts who were courageous enough to come forward oh i remember that was the big thing that was a huge learning curve for me that i was going to talk about with the last question at first, when I didn't really understand, like, sexual abuse, how how people were manipulated, what happened to people, what the, I didn't understand, like, what went on with people's psyche. And um, I was really adamant that people needed to come forward when, um, you know, I knew that this had happened. I knew there were so many people that were a part of it, you know, that it was everybody. I mean, it was just... I don't even know what the number is now that have come forward, like 350, 500, I don't know. So if those are how many have come forward publicly, then there's probably so many more that haven't. And I was so adamant on social media too, like people need to talk about that. They need to speak up. What if it's their best friend this happened to? And I did not understand fundamentally that it's not their job. It is the authorities. It is the people in charge. It is the people who are supposed to keep them safe. It is law enforcement. They're the ones that are supposed to do this. It is not the responsibility of the survivors to come forward. And it took a lot of people yelling at me on social media and me seeking out more information and seeking out a specialist therapist who dealt with this. Um, and to me to go one on one and ask those questions like, why, like, what's happened? Like, what do I not get? Um, and that was, that was super helpful and a huge growth point for me. Um, 
and there's always going to be things like that that I have to learn more about and that I don't get and um hopefully when you know when we, when we on the podcast start to get things and we can explain it to other people and then help grow that information and pass it on so we have more and more listeners who understand that too um so that's part of the educational part of the show um so um i think that yeah the the abuse, like we knew there was so much sexual abuse, especially going on. I mean, it goes on in every sport. It's not just gymnastics. I mean, you know, one of the things that I Googled very early on was um, there's an outside magazine article um, and there one of their journalists did an article and she was like about sexual abuse in a bunch of different sports. And she was like, just Google coach arrested and you will see every single sport you can imagine and theater and dance and school teachers and whatever, like this is everywhere, wherever there are kids, predators will find a way to get a job working with them, period. Um, but despite that kind of knowledge, there was no force to change what was happening. And USA Gymnastics for all of their far faults, um, was a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of actually having a band list. Now getting someone on the band list was almost impossible. Um, and in order to get someone on the band list, you would have to personally expose yourself and your deepest, darkest hurts. And the worst thing that ever happened to you in front of a panel of who of people who could potentially be your peers um, and be part of the, which is it's so egregiously unfair how the system worked but at least they had a band list. Um, the, you know, and the burden was always, there was too much of uh, the burden of proof was way, way, way too high. Um, you know, the, the objective is to stop abuse before it reaches the criminal level, not after it's been a crime, then prove it. That's what the courts are supposed to do. The, all of the other parts of stopping grooming behavior and, um, the parts of, uh, coaching that can lead to these crimes are supposed to be caught beforehand, identified before, beforehand to be part of a code of ethics that makes it very clear what's allowable and what's not. So um, there has been a, it's, it's a huge change over time. And the fact that athletes have felt from the time we started in 2012 to now feel comfortable speaking openly and feel supported is huge. Because before it was like, there was still, even in 2012, it was like, well, you should have known better. You should have, it was, it was on the, the survivor and not the other way around. Does yeah. that answer your question? Oh, I think, it, I think it does. And so just to, to build on this, because really this is like, a, this is the substance of the whole conversation. Um, You've you've mentioned earlier uh, already in our discussion. You know you've, you've gestured to this idea of communist sport, right? And ideas about communist sport. And just now, you've also spoken to kind of the ubiquity of abuse in sport in general, right? This idea of Google uh, coach abuse or whatever, or coach arrested. Um, and and by the way, I think that there's like a, an important piece to it too, which is that we can use this kind of term abuse in in multiple ways in this context. Because recently, right now, you've been talking about sexual abuse, um, and then also earlier we were talking about this question of like 
abusive behavior in elite sport generally, i.e. the harm that happens, right? The fact that this isn't actually a healthy practice, as you were speaking to about your experiences um, trained in kinesiology and so forth, right? Like if you're working in elite sport and you're patching people up to put them back out there in this very instrumental way to perform, that's not really about their health and well-being. That's about something else. And that's harmful and is actually a different, its own form of abuse. And that comes with emotional harm as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, this is a long preamble, but what I'm trying to get to is the fact that we actually recently um, wrote a piece for Jacobin about the Corollis and the way in which the Corollis are kind of framed in popular culture in the United States. And I hope um, listeners who are interested in gymnastics will check that piece out. Um, I'm, I'm certainly curious what people think of it. But the argument we were trying to make there is that the general discourse frames the Corollis as a kind of external threat in that they represent the specter of communism poisoning this kind of pure domain of U.S. sport with some kind of essentially Eastern authoritarianism. Um, And we frame this as a problem precisely because abuse and harm in our view, are just as endemic to the U.S. iteration of the sport and of sports broadly. And then, so the failure to acknowledge this fact and to pin that harm on this kind of outsider coming in and doing evil in the United States, poisoning the sanctity of U.S. sport, actually allows the abuse that was already here and that is everywhere to flourish, right? Because we individualize it, we personalize it, we make it a bad apple issue instead of a universal issue. Um, so I'm kind of curious, do you agree with our appraisal there based on your own experiences in and around the sport? And also just like kind of what are your views about the way in which we have these kind of narratives about communist sport in the world of gymnastics? So first, like to address, I do agree with you. And I think it's um, it's a it's part of this whole like one immigrants are blamed for everything in the United States until unless they've been here for like it takes like, you know, three generations and then we pass it on to the next generation and this isn't just the united states i mean you can see this in many other countries um and you know it's also part of that whole cold war thing where communism was the worst thing ever and now that right now it's socialism is the worst thing ever even though we literally have democratic socialism as part of our government system right now is the way the u.s operates um and but you know abuse in gymnastics and abuse in sport way predates the Corollis arrival on our shores in the United States. Um, and you can see that from the very beginnings, the, you know, the famous, the first famous elite coaches on the East coast, um, and the stories about the things that they would do. And, you know, the sexual abuse that came out of those gyms as well, um, you know, is a legacy that was just carried on in the, in the Corolli camps um, and what happened with them. So this, I feel like there is this blame, but it didn't start with the Corollis. I think that the irony about the Corollis is they empowered it to be more public in a way. Um, it was sort of celebrated. It was like the way it was sort of condemned, but at the same time celebrated because we took this like in a very sexist way, the the loud mouth used car salesman guy um, who was the ultimate capitalist, which I love. There's um, that series by ESPN, um, Heavy Metals, uh, coined that, I believe. He was the ultimate capitalist, uh, Bella Caroli. And that was perfect for media. And so he milked that. I mean, what's more American than that? But we blame the, you know, 
we blame that as being like a communist thing. That's the least communist thing ever. Like, you know, being an individual, making yourself stand out instead of working as a group and con concerning yourself more with the whole and the success of the whole. Um, so, yeah, the abuse predates the Corollis. Um, and I think that I, I think the reason they get so blamed is because they did become the most. Not necessarily actually the most successful when you look at the numbers but um if we're if we're saying if we're measuring success by metals which is how america you know measures success um and but they became the most famous the loudest the most brash um the most feared and they ruled over gymnastics um literally having a united states olympic training center at their freaking house which is the most inappropriate unethical thing that is it no there's much more <laughs> inappropriate unethical things that that the, the usoc and usa gymnastics has done but that's an example of how insidious the system was and is um but they they were the most glittery you know and they took control and everyone feared them because they feared if they did speak up, if they complained, if they talked about anything that was really going on, if the if a parent stood up for their child's right to have access to a phone, to not be alone, any of that stuff, that they would be held off. They wouldn't be put on a team and there would be retaliation and the retaliation and the power dynamic and not having a trust in a system um, to adjudicate any complaints, um, even when they rise to the criminal level. Um, and a system that doesn't have transparency are the fundamental problems that have plagued gymnastics and still do today. I mean, people just don't have confidence in the safe sport system from here to the UK. Yeah. And, and earlier you, you brought up something really interesting to me uh, in this really sort of self-reflexive moment where you mentioned that like there were issues with releasing an episode um, and, and receiving sort of negative responses that you kind of like from listeners that you had to kind of think about and reflect upon. And, and this, a similar thing happened to us on the podcast during our gymnastics week, which we'll link in the show notes. We talked to, to, uh, Geza Pojar, um, whom I, I know that you're familiar with sort of about his decades working as the choreographer, the main choreographer for the Corollis in both Romania and the US. And a question that emerged after the interview, and one that we have, to be quite honest, have continued to struggle with, is whether we as um, hosts and as people who are cognizant of harm associated with sport, sufficiently grappled with his own complicity uh, in that harm. Um, I think we did engage with it, like it, with the issue in general, but we, I, I think, didn't necessarily press him as hard as we could have. And I don't think we also had like the sort of information at our fingertips that we, that we kind of wished that we had at the moment. My question for you is how do you, as an expert in this field, evaluate Pojar's complicity in the decades of abuse? Was it enough to speak out and sort of disclose the harm, both as an informant in Romania and in sort of various public issues that he has, including our own podcast? Does that sort of excuse 
or excuse the fact that he sort of simultaneously built his own career on that success. And these are issues that we are also grappling with. So definitely don't want to kind of put you on the spot, but I'm just curious to get your own thoughts on, on those questions. Yeah, you know, it's really hard. And I totally understand this because like, I try not to have people on the podcast who I know have been um, part of an abusive system unless I I know they're ready to talk about or they're open to talk about it. And they're willing to talk about like, what are the steps that you've taken to change and all that kind of stuff. Um, If there's some reflection, you know, I also think it's valuable to have people on who will speak. So people are who they are and you're whether you press them hard enough or not your listeners are able to see when they someone feels comfortable who they are and you can draw your own conclusions for that and i think sometimes people think that everyone we have on the show is someone we endorse and it's not sometimes it's like they have things to share there are people that are going to disagree with what they have to say um but you listen you decide what do you think of this? Like, what do you hear in their voice? Is there pain? Are they still suffering? Like, can you see how this might not be the full story, but like how they didn't, no one helped them in this pain that they've had, you know? So, or they don't feel like they were helped. So with Gaza, you know, having worked out in his gym for months, um, not years, but for months and seeing how coaches that he hired one coach that he hired in particular treated the elite athletes, including Michelle Campy, um, who's a 92 Olympian, um, but then got injured right when they landed in this crazy freak accident. Um, and so I don't think she's officially considered an Olympian, but just one of like one of the most amazing athletes. Um, I, um, when I think about him, it's interesting because he talked about, I listened to that episode and I remember thinking, like, I can see how. Let me let me back up for a minute. I make a joke with um, a gymnast that I know um, about how, like, she came from a place where her, um, like, people were wiped out in a war, and like the, her family escaped in literally within twelve hours of all the, their neighbors being murdered. And so I'm like, you know, if you come from that your idea of what abuse is and success and survival may be different from what your idea as an American suburban white teenager is who's middle class, right? And so the idea of what what people's backgrounds and what they've suffered in their own lives and what they have seen compared to what the expectation is in a so-called, you know, first world country, um, Mm -hmm. and what their emotional experience is maybe not just in the place that they're from, but with their own family can be totally different. And this is why I totally grapple with the idea of like, what is emotional abuse? Well, how do you define it? When do you know if you see it? And I was like, is it just yelling or is it okay to yell at someone if they almost killed themselves doing something you just told them not to do or hurt someone else? But what if it's a different reason, you know? Um, I really grapple with that, but specifically with yeah. Gaza. So, so having said all of that and like people come with baggage, right. And mm-hmm. different perspectives on the world. Um, there is, I can understand like the thing that I feel compassion for him for, there's a lot of stuff that I feel like is inexcusable. Like, how can you say that you saw abuse, but then you hired this coach, Rick, who was clearly completely abusive to all these gymnasts in the gym and you're paying him 
you know, he, you intentionally hired him. Um, but on the other hand, when he says, how could I leave them? I would be leaving these gymnasts who I cared about. And I thought was the only one protecting them. I was the only one feeding them. I was the only one making sure, you know, that if something happened to them, like someone was looking out for them. Um, when, even when he says that he reported to the authorities about them, nothing was done. I can deeply relate to that. I see everything that's going on and it's bad, but how can I abandon you when I feel like I'm the only one that's helping out in this situation? That I can really relate to. Um, so I feel I, I he's a really complicated he has a really complicated story and I do appreciate that he is so willing to speak, even knowing the criticism that he can get. Um, because I think it helps us understand more of like how could this have happened when you think someone gets it? Um, mm -hmm. but it there it's it's really hard. It's really hard and um and I don't think there are super easy answers because if you if you never talk to anybody who is part of some kind of abusive system, then how are we gonna understand how it happened and how to change? So it's one of those things that all you can do is really like ask the questions. And one of the things that I do is I try to ask people who I know would object and ask them like, what, what do you want this person to answer for? What are the questions that you have? Mm, yeah. um, and then that helps me if I am, have a blind spot, then that helps me get more information so that I'm covering those blind spots the best that I can. But again, it's, it's a, it's hard and people are complicated and I don't know what, what constitutes doing the right thing when there's no one doing the right thing and you're just trying your best to survive. But um, is it better to just leave? I mean, how could he be friends with these people the whole time? Like if you really believe they were terrible, how could you stay friends and then take the recommendations for coaches? Like there's parts that I don't buy of the story. Mm -hmm. I have very complicated feelings about it. <laughs> like it makes me furious. And I also say, yeah. Relatedly, um, you wrote this really great piece in 2018, an op-ed for the LA Times about um, the um, the horrible doctor and the fact that, um, you know, you worked alongside him very briefly as a student athletic intern, training intern in the late 90s, and then interviewed him for Gymcastic in 2013. And in this piece, you explained how um, you had chosen to keep this episode on the website available, um, saying that you hoped that others would learn from it. Um, and as someone who's really been involved in gymnastics world and have critiqued it for some time, sort of what is your um, assessment of kind of how he was able to so successfully build trust within the community and young athletes? So, I mean, I think a lot of people had the same reaction to him that I did. I mean, I only worked with him for two days, like two, like, you know, 12, 16 hour days. Um, but I had never met a doctor and, you know, people assume a doctor is a medical doctor, but of course you can do be a PhD, you can be an MD, you can be an osteopath, you can be a naturopath, there are many kinds of doctors. Um, but people assumed, uh, like people, the way he, I, I'd never dealt, especially in sports, especially in sports. <laughs> I had never dealt with even my own sports injuries or being an athletic training student. Um, so many of the doctors and mostly who you see is like orthopedic uh, either, you know, a general practitioner who doesn't know anything about athletic injuries or what's realistic or what you can actually do in rehab and how much you can still do even when you're injured. Or you see orthopedic surgeons who are just like, yes, I cut you, I fix, 
done. Um, so to work with him, he was incredibly personable. He was like super nerdy and not egotistical, which was also a stark difference to the many doctors that I had been exposed to both professionally and, you know, as a student trainer and in my own personal life. And then, um, he was just kind of goofy and like, he was the most, like, I feel like I could beat him in a fight. I mean, that's like, and most, especially with the orthopedists you meet, like they're all like buff and worked out and they've come from sports and they were a blah, blah, blah. And he was just the antithesis of that. Um, and he was, um, he seemed incredibly kind to people. He took everyone's from like literally coaches who would come over who had been standing for a week straight for 10 hours a day who were in so much pain because they had been gymnasts and had problems. He treated them the same that he treated, you know, any athlete that was competing, like everyone was treated equally. Um, there was no hierarchy, which is another thing that's very different in the medical system of how, like at the time I was a student trainer at UW, um, University of Washington in Seattle. And there it was like, you know, you didn't get primary treatment unless you're a starter like that was it everybody else was back of the line um and that system was also a big wake-up call for me i was like what are you <laughs> like don't you think that if we treated this person like maybe they could also be a starter but they're not even getting a chance um so he was he was the antithesis of everything that was normal to me in the medical system and especially in the sports medical system. And then he also took the time to explain every single thing he was doing. He did not stop talking for two days straight the whole time, explaining to me everything he was doing. Um, and he was also an athletic trainer as well, in addition to an osteopath. So it was really revelatory to me. Like the only other people who had done that were other athletic trainers. Um, who were, you know, teaching, teaching trainers who were, you know, in the university setting. So, um, I think that his whole demeanor was non-threatening and kind. And so that is how he absolutely gained trust. I mean, you just, I, you know, I described this as like, someone asked me, why do you believe this? And I was like, cause this is like, accusing santa claus and i don't mean like mall santa who's asking you to sit on his lap because like duh but this is like you know real fantasy santa that's what it would be like accusing that person and that's why it's unthinkable that someone would do that would accuse him if it wasn't true and so that's why i think so many people also were abused and they just it didn't occur to them that their own internal feelings could be their alarm bells could be right because of this persona that he had cultivated so expertly. Absolutely. No. And, and yeah, I just think, and that's, that seems to be what has been like the impression that like, it has been supported by like numerous athletes and, and whether it's athlete, a heavy metals or, or interviews you've done on your podcast and sort of and other, other sort of media appearances, right. Is that they, the, the sort of structural conditions made it so that his, the way he acted maybe seemed or, or people perceived it to be how do I say uniquely friendly and that that kind of opened the door yeah yep. yeah and so kind of kind of continuing this thought I mean I feel like everything that's kind of been happening within and you know we're focusing on gymnastics and as someone who's a swimmer like I like 
I would love to see more of this happening in the swimming world because there is such a history of abuse in that sport. But as you said, as you rightfully said earlier, like we can't like force people to come out and it really isn't their job. It's more just that like USA swimming needs to like gravel with it. Um, but over the summer, how, especially I mean, seriously, how has USA swimming got away for, for this long? <sighs> like, I can't believe the stuff that comes out. And like, I saw you had Catherine Starr on the show. Like mm-hmm. I learned, she was one of the first people that I learned so much from. And I really started to get it with the way that she really educated me about this. And I just can't believe, I mean, this is what's so, uh, so upsetting, right? It's like, unless the very top names who we know, know, come forward, things don't change. And that's what's so frustrating about it not being, it should not be the responsibility of survivors to come forward. I know. Um, I, yeah. No, so yeah. It it really is. And just like, so the, the I guess the, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts and we had Scott read on, which I know you all have had on the podcast at least once, like years ago, if not more since then. And he just really laid it out to us about kind of like how swimming has a, in some ways has a bigger problem than USA Gymnastics. And, um, you know, it's really, there's real no impetus. There seems to be no impetus to hold people accountable. Like, for example, the one example I keep going back to is that Bob Bowman Right. Who was Michael Phelps's coach sending yeah. Lou, you know, in a way inappropriate text messages, Caroline Burkle. And like, it's been out in the news. People know about it. And people were talking about it beforehand. And he's still a celebrated. I mean, he, you know, he gave out an apology. And like, we had swimmers from my old club team who then went and swam for him. And I'm like, parents, you can Google this stuff. Like, this is not secret knowledge. Right. Exactly. And people have known about this for years. Like, I don't even care about swimming. I know about this. Like, how yeah. he should have been banned years ago now he would be banned for that so why isn't he being banned retroactively right yeah yeah so and went. i know and you know it's also like and i'm i'm kind of hard on like michael phelps because i feel like he has so much power and like he's using it for like the mental health issues which is amazing but there are other issues too where he could really throw his weight and obviously there's a personal connection there with bob Mobin, bob bowman but i mean it's just yeah i have i, I have so many thoughts on it i'm, I'm really frustrated with it and i really hope that eventually there's kind of like a breakthrough. I mean, obviously we don't, we don't want there to be like a Larry Nasso scandal, but that's not what we're asking for. But like, there's just no movement at all on that front. And one um, of the most frustrating things that I think that ha- has been for me, and I know that so many other people who really want change is that for an athlete, especially who's successful. So let's think about Nadia. Let's think about the very top names that you can think of in the sport for them to come forward against their own coaches who made their lifelong dreams come true and change their life forever, who they they feel they would never have achieved what they wanted without this coach, despite this coach's failings, that the overall balance is good for that person rather than bad. Um, They it's I mean, they'll never come forward. Mm -hmm. They're not going to like something. I feel like people either have to have kids or they have to go through like for men, like menopause, which is like a real thing where men's testosterone changes and they cry more and they seem to like understand things um, from a different perspective. And like having grandkids, you know, like a life changing thing has to happen that helps them dissociate themselves from who they were at the time they achieved their dreams. And then then it might be worth it to say something but it's like it's so frustrating it's so frustrating i totally understand where you're coming from and can, can i just jump i just want to jump in and say something that i thought was unreal that pozar told us in that interview going back to what you said about nadia and folks like that and the fact that like you know 
they hold these these coaches are responsible they feel are responsible for bringing them the success that they had so those individuals are not going to speak up and yet those are the ones with the most power but something he said that was so unbelievable to me was that he actually felt that the Corollis held Nadia back like mm-hmm. Bella was such a poor coach <laughs> mm-hmm. technically that she would have like Nadia's success was because of her genius as a gymnast it had nothing to do with the Corollis. The Corollis inhibited her success because of their lack of technical, you know, just like the, the, their abusive approach and lack of technical expertise meant that she was probably less successful than she would have been in other hands. Um, which I just, I don't know. I just want to throw that in there because that's something that just kind of <laughs> reverberates in my brain. Like one of these things that doesn't fit any of the narratives that are out there. That's been echoed with other athletes. I mean, you think of the athletes who have said, I mean, going back to our interview with Michaela Maroney or, you know, talking about the athletes who have come out who are part of the 2012 Olympics, you know, every single one of them was sexually abused and to have them come forward and say, like, think of how I would have been like Michaela Maroney, greatest vaulter ever above far and above and beyond the men even better than uh simone who's about to unveil a skill that no woman's ever done um and marta would never let anybody do because she said it was too scary and dangerous um so even michaela maroney was training this uh vault too but she wasn't allowed to do it just your chenko double pike um how good could we have been they said if we weren't abused, if we didn't have eating disorders, if we were allowed to eat, if we were allowed, if we were, could, weren't so anxious all the time, how, what could I have done? What could I have lasted longer? I never wanted to quit gymnastics. I wanted to stay in gymnastics forever. I still don't want to quit gymnastics. I can't even, Maroney couldn't even say, say the word retirement. Um, because it's too hard. It's, it's their, it's their love. You know, it's their passion. And to be, to have to step away for your own health, your mental health, your physical health, your psyche, your soul is so crushing. And so I think that what Pozar said is probably, you know, totally correct. I mean, if you see the way that, um, that Bella coached too, like he's, you know, he's a hype man, you know, like he could be on stage behind Cardi B, like that's what he does. Um, but he's only if Cardi B was male and white. So, um, <laughs> I mean, so it's like, yeah, I think he's totally correct. And I think that so often, I think, especially as is part of, you know, Western culture is we give credit to men and we don't give credit to, especially if the athlete is female, we don't give the athlete credit and even more. I don't know why it is in these sports, and maybe you guys can speak to that more. Why do we give credit so much credit to the coaches? Even men, like even, I mean, it's more so with women, but like we're always talking about the coaches and we're always talking about the gym and oh, they're from this coach who's coach da 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 da. Does that shift their actual results? Oh, like that's, that's why, I, right? That's a great question. I actually, want, I do want to jump in on that because I think you've you've really pinpointed. I think that a big part of this is the culture of amateur sports, because in these so-called amateur sports, mm. the athletes aren't properly valued, right? Like value is being produced in weird ways, but it can never flow to the athletes. So, like you know, we talk all the time about college football, and I know you're you're very cognizant of you know college mm-hmm. sport issues broadly beyond gymnastics alone. And one of the weird things about you know like the way salaries work, for instance, in college basketball, men's college basketball, and men's college football, the coaches are paid, relatively speaking, way more. Let's say in men's college basketball than NBA coaches. 
you know, David Barry, an economist, has done work on this. It's because, like, Greg Popovich, the, you know, widely considered to be the best ba- men's basketball coach in the NBA, he hasn't paid as much as Mike Krzyzewski, the coach at my university. Um, and that's because if you can choose who to pay and you run a sports operation, guess what? You pay the athletes. It's a no-brainer. The athletes make you win, not the coaches. So in a so-called free market, which we supposedly love so much in this country, you pay the athletes. But in a world that doesn't actually reward the athletes for their labor, right? That doesn't value them and doesn't, doesn't actually compensate them. Well, then you got to pay someone else. And the coach gets to take that cash and the coach gets the prestige to go with it. And the coach gets to control everything, right? And so amateur sport is toxic because it is so empowering to the coach. This, my whole like, wor- like that is exactly it. That totally makes sense to me. That 100% is the thing. And then kind of just to add to that, like, how do I say? I, I think I sigh because I'm exasperated. <laughs> it's just, I, I feel like, like the grooming and I'm not even just talking about grooming for sexual abuse, a grooming for any abuse. Like I think back to my own experiences, I'm sure we've all had different levels of it. And God knows, unfortunately, you know, you have an academia too, where like the, the people, the coaches have created this environment where like you yearn for the very brief moments where they shine, you know, where they give you a tiny bit of praise and then yep. they give it, they dole it out so rarely. And I, and that's what, and I got that in the heavy metals podcast was that you just, you, the, the athletes just yearn for it. I'm like, God, this is so real. Cause I felt this, I felt this so many times to the point where like, you know, because my goal, my focus was on like doing everything I could to get, I don't know, one positive comment a month, which is ridiculous. And I'm like swimming's like gymnastics where you're swimming I mean, multiple times a day. I mean, you're doing it later. You start doing it in like your teens, not, you know, like earlier, like in gymnastics, but it's just kind of doled out. So then you, you almost become, you become so fixated on getting that praise. And then even then when you're done, right, like you still think that everything that you achieved is because of that coach and because of your work and getting them to help you get to that point that then it's, you know, for, for whatever reason, it's hard to criticize, you know, even the little bit that I've criticize like my coaches and like on Twitter, I like called my, my teams out by name. And I had people message me being like, what are you, what are you trying to do here? What is your end goal? And like people with, you know, that I was friends with the people in the swimming community saying, you know, well, you weren't perfect when you were a swimmer. And I heard you say things. I'm like, I get that. And I've have like, you know, said, you know, I've said things. I've apologized to people. I know I've made mistakes. I was 15. I wasn't 40. I wasn't a 45 year old coach who was like commenting on like girls boob sweat and like stuff like that, that is horrifying. And at the time being like, Oh, this is weird, but like everyone's laughing. So I guess I should too, but it just, you know, there's such a hold over you. And, and yeah, just even again, like the reaction of like, you know, the fears of what you're going to get. And what I got was way more mild than I'm sure what other, you know, people have got when they've come forward with this stuff. Yeah. I hear you. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I know, right? That's my reaction too. It's disgusting listening to you say that. I mean, it's like, and also to to say that those comments from a forty year old coach are commensurate in some way to what a fifteen year old Mm -hmm. is saying. I mean, come on. Yeah. Yeah. Break. Yeah. So to kind of, I mean, still kind of continue on this topic of sort of like how, how, sort of how do we deal with people who, and this is something that like we are very much still learning as like, I don't know, academics are not really 
taught to sort of be public intellectuals is something that I think the three of us are starting to do. Nathan's been doing, Nathan and Derek have been doing it longer than I have, but like in grad school, we're certainly never taught that this is how you do it. So I know for me, this is very much a learning process. So I'm really like interested in your answer to this. And so yeah, over the summer, really because of the pandemic, highlighting these structural inequalities and also people just having more time to heal and think back on the past, we've seen such an amazing like outpouring of athletes who like watching Athlete A, but also just talking with each other and have come forward with these statements about their various experiences of abuse and really within gymnastics. And it's just, it's, it's really great to see that. And it's really like incredible to see them feel comfortable doing that. As you said, when for so long, they didn't feel that way. Um, and we're obviously huge fans on the podcast, as are you, Jessica, about athletes advocating uh, for themselves. But then again, you know, as more evidence of abuse comes to light, we're also kind of, we also have to reckon with our own experiences that we've had with abusive people that maybe were not, did not give evidence of abuse the way it might have for other people. And it's come on more recently in the context of Alyssa Beckerman and Miss Val or Valerie Condos for people who may not be aware. Um, now, you're obviously um, in the spotlight more than most people are when it comes to these issues. Um, and as I said, it's a real challenge for I mean, all, us all when we hear really troubling information that can kind of conflict with our own memories and experiences. And so we're just kind of curious, you know, how have you grappled with this, especially as like gymnastics has just gone through so much turmoil over the last, I mean, five years, if not longer. And sort of what have you learned that might be helpful for kind of all of us to hear as we address these issues when they arise? So one thing to start to go back to kind of talking about you guys and why you're doing this and being sort of public facing and sort instead of just publishing and being in the academic world, like I think that, you know, and this is something that David Barry, you just mentioned, the economist has talked about is like the impact that mm -hmm. you make will be made publicly. So the more you are available to the general public to share what you know and your incredible vast amount of knowledge and the more you make it consumable to the general public, and that doesn't mean you still obviously don't publish and like peer review and da 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 da, -da and accolades and academia, you know, that's like super important, obviously. Uh, but this is super important to create the most accessible way for people to consume research and have the conversation and whether that's like you have a TikTok as a professor <laughs> um you know or you right like i was just saying how like i i have learned i have discovered that this medium of like having pictures music and that the words printed as someone's talking is like the most amazing way for me to consume information and learn <laughs> um and so it's like whatever it is like publishing in regular magazines from vogue to the economist um that kind of stuff, podcasts, like it's so important for your knowledge to be shared in a consumable way. Um, and so I want to like just acknowledge you guys for doing that because I think it's so incredibly helpful um, to those of us that can't stand to read an academic uh, article. <laughs> so, and but really want the information and want to be informed. So thank you. Um, yeah. So one thing, and there's something else that you mentioned. I can't remember why I wrote this down, but. Um, just like kind of the frustration with what's happening and the progress that's being made or not being made is like one of the things that just came out was the human rights campaign report about Japan and all of the abuse that's going on with mm -hmm. athletes and like just straight up punching people in the face. Um, and we've seen that even in gymnastics with um, Sai was there was a video of her um, 
you know, being essentially punched open hand by her coach and he was, you know, banned for a short time, but she defended him. And it's like, like, why isn't this a bigger deal? I mean, like, why that's not human rights? Like we talked about it, but you know, I think it's, it comes down to going back to that consumability and what people care about and what platform you use. It's like, there were no famous athletes mentioned Mm -hmm. in that. So yeah, like, I, I only heard about it from your show. I did, hadn't seen it anywhere else until I listened to that episode, which I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, what the hell? Why are we talking about this? Right. And I'm like, how did like, how did, how was this suppressed? Like, is there, mm-hmm. I always suspect something goes on to that. But I, um, you know, it's one of those things that's like so frustrating about how things work is that we don't want it to be, have to have someone famous to come forward and talk about it. But if Michael Phelps would back up just one of these women, then things could change, you know? So, um, but yeah, I think the things that I've learned is like one conflicts of interest are part. So go back to your question about like what I've learned in criticism and the Miss Val and Alyssa Beckerman thing is like, one is stick to journalistic principles of conflict of interest. They exist for a reason, respect them, stick to them, period. Um, Even if people get angry with you for sticking to it, do it because you know i had made a rule for myself that i wasn't going to talk about things when i had a conflict and then people got really mad and criticized me even when i agreed with the things my co-host said it was like yeah, i agree with every question everything he said and all of those questions and answer that wasn't enough people got mad so then i was like all right i'll talk about it um and then people got even more mad at that and i think the reason is um like what i take away from that whole situation is one like stick to the rules of journalism two is respect people's pain so no matter what information you have, what no matter what side of things you think that you're on, no matter what is going on behind the scenes, like be a human being to people. So take yourself out of the situation and be like, no matter what's happening, you're standing in front of a person who is in pain. Respect that person's pain respect that they're still going through something this many years later so much so that they publicly are talking about it and what would their motivation be and take all of that out and just think about what if someone's in this much pain and has this much anger respect it and acknowledge it yeah, when I was just gonna say, like, I, I really just like listening to you kind of talk through it, like on the show, and the most recent episode that came out, like, I, I, I really appreciated like your honesty and like your transparency. And it just, it like really also like, you know, you were thanking us for like the podcast, which is amazing. But like, obviously, like you were also teaching us, this is, you know, we're gonna make mistakes. This is how to kind of think through it in the future you know, and that sort of thing. So like, it was extremely educational for me, kind of how you, you know, you all kind of walked us all through it. So I guess like, from my perspective, like, thank you. It was just really helpful what you, what you did. Oh, thank you. I hope so. I mean, like I, someone sent me that Maya Angelou quote where she was like, you know, when you don't know better, you're going to mess up. She, obviously it's not as eloquent as she would say, but you don't know better, you're going to mess up. But when you know better, do better. And like, that's mm-hmm. all we can ask. Right. And like, Um, And I feel like if I'm asking people to admit their mistakes and talk about change and advocating for change, then I have to also be a model of that, even when it's really painful and personal, like I have to do it. And so, yeah, thanks for that. I'm trying. 
Yeah, no, and I, and I echo Johanna. It's uh, I really appreciate you, um, you know, just, just sharing that with us and with listeners. Um, and so my, my next question is actually it's switching gears a little bit because it's something we haven't had a chance to talk to uh, talk about enough yet today. And it's although you have brought it up, and it's something that we really did not get into um, sufficiently in our gymnastics week, but we did a mu- I think a much better job with uh, in swimming week dealing with um, race and racism in the sport. So this is something you speak about um, a great deal. And I would love it if you could try to just talk our listeners a little bit through the racial or racist dynamics in U.S. gymnastics, what might need to change and why. So, um, you know, you had another guest on who talked about this, Georgia. Um, But uh, when we first started the podcast, we did a lot of... um, one of our co-hosts um, did a lot. He was he has his PhD now. He's in the process of getting his PhD at the time, and he you know went back and read every single code of points, which is the rule book for gymnastics, and every single international gymnast magazine, which is the oldest gymnastics magazine that we have in the U.S. and um, And we went through the history of gymnastics, and we went through the history of the code. And one of the things we learned is that it's based on fundamental sexism and racism. And so the racism comes in as this being a European white sport that's where it really came up and became codified as a sport where the rules came from and um it also is based in ballet so another european uh you know art which is the most not human movement in the world (laughs) the most not natural ballet also beautiful um and so with those fundamentals and reading the actual language in the original code of points i mean it's written the actual words feminine movement that's literally i mean of course this won't be a surprise to you guys because you know you've studied the history of sport and how these things emerge and all the politics but um i was just like shocked like they and i was like of course they did it was the 50s like in the 60s like and you can see it in the in the gymnastics you know it's white gymnasts with bouffants and they their head is like lilting to the side and all of their movements it's so like weak looking um and that is that those fundamentals there are there's nothing wrong with having that base in and of itself it's how the interpretation is not acknowledged in the way that the sport is judged so if you're going to base this on ballet then you have to acknowledge that ballet is based on a certain body type which uh, is European and white and doesn't allow for different kind of body types. And gymnastics has to work for every single body type of all humans in every country in the world. Um, and basing it on European ballet obviously takes away um, from for allowing for all those different body types. So you have to train judges to acknowledge that bias. If they don't know it, you have to have implicit bias training. You have to have them understand how, and you have to have a system of acknowledging how judges might be seeing, uh, might be judging an athlete differently, a white athlete from a black athlete different, an Asian athlete different from um, a South American gymnast differently. Is there something they don't recognize and taking away the countries that they're from, because that's the only way that judges are evaluated right now, are they favoring one country or punishing one country more of the deductions? Taking all of that away, 
Do we have a way to acknowledge or even recognize if there's body type bias? Do we have a way to even recognize if one judge is judging a lighter skinned person better? Those, those systems don't exist right now in gymnastics as far as we know. We have, you know, a robot manufacturer in Japan has paid the FIG a whole bunch of money to, um, you know, scan all of the gymnast bodies and use their intellectual property in perpetuity if they signed off of it on it. But we don't have apparently the money to study these fundamental things to see if the, the code is flawed. And, you know, people that don't understand the systematic problem will say, well, you have a black uh, Olympic and world champion, so there's no problem. Um, and, you know, there is a consistent problem. Why did it take one million years to get to a black world and Olympic champion? That's another thing we can point to. So, um, yeah, it, it's not just that there are unidentified um, and there are holes and blind spots in the system there's no way to identify those problems right now and there's also it's literally codified in the origins of the sport and we haven't gotten rid of those things um the other thing is you know there's just a lot of things that people don't because there's a white bias there's things that people don't don't think about because you know if you have a, an entire staff of almost all white people who live in Switzerland and aren't exposed to the same level of diversity and don't come from different backgrounds, they're not going to solve problems the same way. So, you you know, we've seen this happen in, in the U.S. in college, too. It's like you want to put numbers on a gymnast. Well, they had like they painted these dark brown numbers on everyone. Well, of course, it doesn't show up on the black gymnast, you dumbasses. So like th things like that that are just like you cannot have an all white organization and expect to be seeing the issues that are real for a gymnast. So um, those are like the basic, most base base level. There's many other issues, but just as a sport that is judged, um, those are part of the problem. Absolutely. And, you know, I really, I want to say, I don't remember what episode what it was recently where y'all talked about lineup racism. And, you know, like I've said, I'm not like a gymnastics, you know, pro by all means. So I didn't even know what the lineup meant, which just kind of shows my ignorance, but I really appreciated how you all walked kind of listeners through that. And, you know, I was also thinking like, even within the gymnast Alliance movement, it's, it's mainly focusing on issues of like sexual and physical abuse and like the racial element is not brought in almost, it seems to me at least, unless there's a black gymnast that will say I had these experiences as there've been several within the U S and I know you've talked about it on your show as well. And you know, I was, I was curious about like when you talked about body types, because for example, I know, I think it was either Ellie Downey or her sister who were both like British gymnasts, they came forward and said, you know, we were weight shamed and all this other, all these other things. You know, one thing that I thought was missing and I could be off base here was that they are, they're black gymnasts being like body shamed for their curves. At least that was kind of how I read it. And, but I wasn't sure if that had kind of been part of the conversation or if I'm like sort of totally off base and, and making that connection there. You know, I mean, I think it's part of the part of the problem um, that they have a different body type and that they're not white. Um, and yeah, I think you're not, that's not a crazy conclusion to come to. Um, and I think that, I mean, to further 
that conversation um, and that idea that gymnast, gymnasts look a certain way from height to body type to the amount of muscle mass to their weight. Um, you know, there are many multiple interviews with Nellie Kim, mostly in Russian. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't say this stuff in English, um, where Nellie Kim is an Olympic champion and she is all she competed in the time of Nadia and she was the second person to get a 10. She'll tell you that, tell you that a hundred times. It was only like two minutes later. Um, <laughs> but she um, was the most influential person in gymnastics for many, many years because she was in charge of the rules for women, essentially. Um, and, you know, she is, she talks in such a racist way about um, non-white gymnast, how they don't have any technique. Simone doesn't have any technique. She's just strong. So she can do it this way. Um, and it's shocking to me that you can have someone hold a position. It shouldn't be shocking to me because hello. Um, (laughs) but you know, you have a person who's so openly racist in a position that high up in the international gymnastics federation Mm -hmm. and that those interviews haven't caused her to be ousted. Mm-hmm. Or another thing, because now she's even higher up. She's like the vice president now or something. Um, and this is after these interviews have come out. So, um, yeah, I would say it totally has to do with them having being black. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I, yeah, and I, and I feel like with her being promoted, it's that old. I feel like that's a very like nine, maybe not nineties, maybe a recent thing. Someone, you know, says this hugely racist thing and rather than dealing with it, they just, they just kind of promote them. Um, yeah, just made me think of that. Um, and so the, sort of this last question that we have for you um, is about like athlete activism and like political activism within g- gymnastics. And, you know, and, and we, I really appreciate in your, in your podcast, how you bring in very clearly, like overtly political issues, such as the need to vote, how college kids should not sign COVID wa- waivers for the universities, that Black Lives Do Matter, and all these things. And, you know, we always talk about how sport is deeply political and really entrenched in white racism and stuff like that. And so our fans, very like from the beginning, knew to expect this framework from us. But I, I guess I wanted to get your sense of like to what extent in gymnastics are, are do you see do we see athletes being politically minded as say athletes in other sports at least like football and the NBA like what we're seeing right now? Way less. What mm. I mean, gymnastics is like so. I think it's changing and it's changing because society has changed so much in the last. Um, I would say in the last four years, our society has been forced to change so much. But over the last ten years, a ton. Um, but so it's evolving, but I mean, there's only been, as far as I know, one gymnast in all of elite gymnastics, college gymnastics, who has knelt during the national anthem, um, Alexis Brown went to UC Davis. Um, there has been, um, and that was hugely controversial and it caused a lot of problems for her. Um, and still there's been no, I mean, even in gymnastics, like we did a whole episode on political movements in gymnastics and it's a handful. I mean, it was so hard to find any of them. Um, you know, there's famously one Olympic champion who turned her head to the side was the, you know, Vera Chavlovska, whose um, country was invaded by Russia. And then they changed when she won uh, the Olympics, the Olympic all around, they changed her, the Russian score retroactively so that she would tie and not win outright and beat a Soviet, I'm sorry, Soviet Union at the time, not Russian Soviet Union. Um, and uh, so she turned her head down into the side and she was outcast after that. And that was not against like, consider she wasn't punished for that by the IOC but um 
it had great consequences for her personally. It was such a small thing. I mean, she turned her head down to the side. It was like nothing compared to kneeling or putting her fist in the air. So political movements have been almost non-existent in the sport of gymnastics. The ones that do exist are incredibly noticed because they're so rare and um i think that that is going to change um but i think it's going to change because if i think it would not have changed if it wasn't for all of the survivors of the sexual abuse coming forward and making the power dynamic problems known in gymnastics um and making a point of talking about the power dynamics and how they didn't feel safe to speak up and how they didn't feel safe to um to ever even talk about their most basic needs from soap let alone let alone like bring up political race issues in gymnastics um so i think that we will see once we have gymnastics again we will see more political activism, regardless of what the IOC decides to do or not do, um, or what USA Gymnastics does. I mean, I think USA Gymnastics, like if they try to do anything to an athlete that makes a political statement, like they would be buried. So they know not to do that. And also the new the new CEO comes from the NBA. So she's smarter than to try to quash that stuff. The NBA is very, I mean, the WNBA is way more active and have been for a long time than the men, but the men have caught up to the women now. Um, so, but it's super rare in gymnastics, but I, I think we'll see more of it. And I wish college gymnastics was happening in more places than just the Big Ten and the SEC. At least for now, that's where it's slated to actually happen. Um, because I think we will see political activism now. Yeah. And to kind of get one thing, um, I know we've been keeping you so long, but one kind of point I wanted to make, you brought up Vera Cheslovska. And what, what's even interesting about that is that like that happened in 1968, which is obviously from like an American perspective was a huge moment when we have Tommy Smith and John Carlos who, yeah. you know, raised their fists and got in like the, the IOC, which was, which was run by Avery Brundage, super racist, super sexist guy, just really overall horrible man. And he came down so hard on them. But Charles Oscar's political uh, action was okay because it was perceived as anti-communist, which aligned with like the Western view. So like you write in that even the political statements, they're like allowed within like a certain kind of political context. And it's not to take away from her because she really suffered afterwards, you know, within Czechoslovakia. But I just think that's interesting. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, it's one of those things that when I when it occurred to me that like the civil rights movement and like the summer of love hippie stuff was at the same time, I was mm -hmm. like, wait, what? Yeah, yeah. Like that, you know, it's an example of, you know, <laughs> how yeah, making that connection I think is super important. Um, and it's also another thing I want to point out when I talk about racism and the culture of the sport is that um, you know, we've never had a non-white gymnast or we've never had a white gymnast punished for um breaking any um age falsification rules even though there's oh. proof that they have so only asian gymnasts have ever been punished for this and um it's i just think it's there is a more there's a rule it's like 10 years or something as the ioc rule for going back and punishing people for stuff but um i just think that it's it's you know, we have Romanian gymnasts that were coached by the, you know, Carolis, who've come forward and shown their two different passports and talked about it openly. Um, mm. And nothing's ever happened to them. And I don't think it really should happen to the athletes. I think it should be to the, the federation. It should be to happen to the 
whoever's in charge of their Olympic committee, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> whoever gives out passports, um, but not the actual passport maker, not the people low on the chain, the people high on the chain. But it's another <laughs> it's just another sign of the racist history, I think. Absolutely. Even if it wasn't a conscious, you know, a conscious effort, it's just a fact. Right. No, and I'm glad you brought up I'm glad you brought that up because I feel like I feel like especially that the the age issue with Chinese gymnasts, like that's something I remember like ten years ago, which is like constantly being brought up. So I'm really glad that you glad that you kind of brought that to our attention. Um so Jessica, thank you so much. We have kept you so long. This has been such a fantastic, just really amazing interview and conversation. And thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your insights. Thank you so much for inviting me and thank you for what you guys are doing. I've learned so much from your show and I'm so excited to keep uh, learning from it and sharing about it on our podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod. Or check out our website at www.endofsport.com where you can find details for our Patreon to support the show even more.